Nearly a decade ago, I found myself filling the hours by listening to podcasts while my husband, Brooks, was training with the U.S. Army. Walking the streets of our Army post, I dreamt of creating something for women that bridged that gap between sermon audio and small talk. It was on the floor of my tiny closet on post that that very dream, the Dream for the Journey Women podcast, came to fruition in June of 2017. And today, by God's grace, Journey Women is now a not-for-profit ministry with the aim of moving women to know and love God more. Our monthly and one-time givers help make our mission possible. If you'd like to support the work that we do, you can make a tax-deductible donation by visiting journeywomen.org forward slash give. Thank you for investing in the work of Journey Women. Welcome to the Journey Women Podcast. I'm your host, Hunter Belis. Life's a journey we were never meant to walk alone. We all need friends along the way. On the Journey Women Podcast, we'll chat with mentors about gracefully navigating the seasons and challenges we face on our journeys to glorify God. On this episode of the Journey Women Podcast, Chris Legg, a pastor and professional counselor, lays out a foundation for understanding human sexuality. We discuss everything from metaphysics, don't worry, I didn't know what that meant either, to helping our children understand their sexuality from a biblical perspective. As mentioned, Chris is a professional counselor and the lead pastor of South Spring Baptist Church in Tyler, Texas. Fundamentally, Chris is a minister and shepherd of people, of which I am one, and I'm so thankful for the opportunity to discuss such an important topic with somebody that's as experienced, thoughtful, and as wise as Chris Legg. There's no denying that human sexuality is such a sensitive topic, especially today. Listen to what Chris had to say. The problem we're dealing with is an identity question. Let's get back to the question of how do you know who you are? How do you know what makes life good? How do you know what makes life valuable? How do you know that you aren't trash? How do you know that you aren't meaningless, that your life has no significance? Because we intuitively know, and I believe all humans, intuitively know that, that that there's more to life than just being sophisticated eating and pooping machines. In a godless existence, that's all man is, and none of what we did will matter. And something tells us at a deep level, that's not true. On a personal level, I found my conversation with Chris incredibly helpful, yet challenging. It's difficult to openly discuss something as closely tethered to our identity as our sexuality. This conversation was between two followers of Jesus, me and Chris. You'll hear me seeking to understand how to navigate such a difficult topic in our society and Chris responding to my questions as a pastor, a mentor, and a friend. My hope is that whether you agree or disagree with the biblical foundation Chris establishes, that you will find his insight on engaging in grace-filled, educated dialogue very helpful when having conversations like this of your own. As we do, I hope that we'll all put into practice Chris's encouragement to seek common ground and to avoid being unnecessarily offensive. Chris, how are you? I am very well. Awesome. Welcome. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited to chat with you today. Thanks for your time. This will be totally different. The only podcasts I've been on so far have been with atheists. I've seen that. So what's funny is I'm I'm only used to these being adversarial. And so (laughs) this will be a, a nice release from that. Despite the fact that I didn't exactly choose a light topic for you. (laughs) Oh, that's okay. That's okay. (laughs) The audience is what matters, not the topic. 
Well, for those who aren't familiar with you, I want to tell them that there are like a hundred things I could say about you. But what matters most, I think, are your wife, Ginger, and your five wonderful children. But in addition to being an excellent father and husband, Chris is also a licensed practicing counselor, the pastor of South Spring Baptist Church in Tyler, Texas. He's an incredibly challenging and gifted teacher, and he's a developer of people, myself included. So I am so honored to have you on the show today, Chris, to discuss the very important topic of gender roles and sexuality. Welcome to the Journey Women podcast. Oh, I am honored to be here. I'm excited about it. Well, I know I opened up with my own version of your bio, but what did I miss? Can you tell us what you're passionate about and what you're doing now for a living? Well, I I have this nasty habit of adding careers rather than changing (laughs) careers. but So I still teach uh, quite a bit out at Pine Cove, especially with the Forge program. Yes, that's where we initially connected. And then I am the lead pastor here at South Spring Baptist Church, which this actually, we're not yet at one year. January will be one year, although we started the process uh, August a year ago, so, which has made this a, um, a really interesting year, hard year in some ways. But it's, it's hard, I assume. I've never been a church planter, so it's hard, I assume, to plant a church when there's you know five or six couples in a room and they say, hey, you preach, we'll be elders, let's plant a church. But when you have a thousand members and you decide to plant a church, it's amazing the complications of the legalities and what has to come before what. And so it's it has been a pretty a pretty fatiguing year. The good news is I got six weeks of sabbatical now about six or eight weeks ago, and that was really nice. The church is a very generous church from that angle. And then, as you said, I'm also owner-operator Lathia Family Counseling Center. But yeah, twenty almost twenty four years now married to Ginger, and we have the five kids, our five awesome kids. The first one is now old enough to be in college. I cannot believe that. Well, you have played a fatherly role in my own life, and as I was thinking about who I wanted to have on the podcast initially, your name definitely came to mind. But the only trouble I had was what topic to touch on with you because you are an expert in so many fields. But the topic that we're going to address today is kind of a controversial one today that's just becoming more and more confusing within Christianity. And I wanted to find somebody who could address it gracefully and biblically. So I would love to look at the topic of gender roles and sexuality with you kind of through the lens of what scripture says. So could you kind of just lay a foundation for us about what scripture says about males and females? I'm actually going to go back further. Okay. In order to understand why this is a problem right now, uh, why this is even a conversation for us right now, I want to start with the philosophy of it. Um, And so give me, if you'll indulge me, give me a couple minutes to do this. I'll try and hang. Metaphysics is one of the main areas of philosophy. Metaphysics is the discussion of who we are in the universe. What is man in the universe? And so for most of human history... We had, though they didn't call it this for the most part, um, a, what was called pre-modern metaphysic. So the pre-modern metaphysic, there's a lot to this, and I'm giving a very simplified version of this. But the pre-modern metaphysic, one aspect of it, one of the many, is that there are external sources for everything. Here's what I mean. Even from a, just the statement of truth, like what makes something true, that comes from outside of mankind. Um, What makes a chair a chair? That's outside of mankind. Your opinion and my opinion don't matter. What matters is there's an absolute right answer. 
truth, value, purpose, significance, identity. These are all external. They come from an external source, fate, God, gods, uh, whatever. Mm-hmm. And so somewhere in the Reformation, Renaissance, slash um, Enlightenment period, mm-hmm. the world began to shift over to what's called a modern metaphysic. And the modern metaphysic is that there are external sources for some things and internal sources for other things. It was kind of a, an interesting mixture of man is now not just a creation, he is a created creator. The universe is not just his home or her home, the universe is now the material with which he builds his home, if you follow that. So um, that's the modern, and America was founded as a modern nation. Uh, most of our founders would have been pretty powerfully modern in their metaphysic, that yes, there is such a thing as a king, and there is such a thing as divine rights. Yeah. Um, that being said, there's also some things that aren't divine. So people confuse the founders' words, all men are created equal. The founders did not believe that all men were created equal in all ways, right. just in some ways. They're created equal in the things that come from the outside, like God-given rights. And so God-given rights, everyone is equal. The, that's the external sources. Everyone has an, has an equal playing field. The internal sources, though, people have very different playing fields. So then, somewhere around 150, maybe reaching a little further back than that, you start seeing what we now call the postmodern metaphysic. The postmodern metaphysics says that there are no external sources for anything, especially when we start applying that to truth or identity or value. That begins to really play out pretty powerfully. The questions we're dealing with right now of gender and sexuality, and this is these those are a a kind of a honestly, even though they're kind of the attention seeking uh, ADD child right now in the family, yeah. um, they aren't. And I was one of those, so I can say that <laughs> they're getting a lot of attention. But it's really a they're really just that that is an expression of the overall issue, which is if no one from the outside, if nothing from the outside can tell us. Right. who or what we are, then who can? And the only person left is ourselves. Yeah, That's deeply problematic because the human race is deeply flawed. For sure. What we're dealing with is who gets to decide to say anything about me? So who from the outside can say anything about me? Well, yeah. obviously in the postmodern metaphysic, God has no rights on this. God, God cannot tell us. Even if there is a God, God's, this, this is the, probably the main reason for the growth of nuns in America, meaning people who, when you ask their, their religious affiliation, they say none. Um, we aren't seeing more atheists percentage-wise. We are seeing less people who take a stance at all. And a big part of it is this. They've been raised their whole lives and educated their whole lives with the idea that no one can tell them or anyone else anything about themselves from the outside. So God can't tell you you're a man or a woman, much less male or female or masculine or feminine. These are all separate concepts. He can't tell you what's right and wrong. He can't tell you what's good or bad. Um, And those are all rejected concepts anyway. And postmodernism also, because another tenet of postmodernism is to reject dichotomous thinking. 
good, bad, black, white, up, down, those are all rejected as error um, automatically. So about half our country right now, by the way, is modern in their metaphysic. Yeah. We call conservatives. And about half our country or is primarily modern. And about half our country is primarily postmodern, which okay. is why we see votes go the way they do and why yeah. we see it's really a metaphysical question. It's just no one knows that no one knows that's what they're talking about. When you yeah, see presidential no. candidates debate, they don't have any idea. No, I mean I this is the first time I've been introduced to such a thought. There you go. So now what we're dealing with is who does get to tell me? So that being said, let's now go to the cultural conversation. So our culture is no longer allowed to tell us anything about ourselves. Yeah. Now this is just raw denial. Of course it is constantly telling us things about ourselves, but the postmodern metaphysic denies its right to do so. Masculine and feminine, let me define some terms. Male and female is a chromosomal situation. Yeah. It has to do with your XY chromosomes, male and female. At this point, we still don't have any vote in that. That may happen someday, but we don't yet. No matter what surgery you do, no matter what hormones you take, no matter what, you cannot change your XY chromosome situation. So it's the XX that's a female, is that right? Yes. Okay, and the XY is a male? Right. That's why your husband determines the sex of the baby. Okay. Not intentionally. I mean, he doesn't choose it. <laughs> right, right, right. The man either gives the woman an X or a Y. And if, if we give you an X, you, have a, you give birth to a little girl. And if we give you a Y, your X goes with our Y. And then you have a little boy. So male and female is determined by the makeup of your chromosomes. Right. So what, what we're dealing with right now, one of the things we're dealing with is people, people don't like that because they see genetics as an outside source. Mm-hmm. And an outside source can't tell you anything about yourself. So you see the problem is that if you are XY and therefore are male, right. there's a, a, a movement in the culture to say, well, who are your genetics to tell you that you're a male? Yeah. Now, of course, what that means is we just, we'll just need another word for XY chromosome. I mean, if, if eventually that falls apart, we're just going to come up with another word. Because your XY chromosome situation has to mean something. It, it does mean something. In my mind, this is kicking against the goats. When you start saying, my genetics can't tell me that I'm male, mm-hmm. now you're just redefining a word. Because genetics is what tells you whether you're male or female. Yeah. That's what male and female means. Now, that's male and female. You'll have audience members who struggle with what I'm going to say next. Masculine and feminine is a cultural phenomenon, not a chromosome or genetic phenomenon. Okay, what do you mean by masculine and feminine? So masculine is what it means to be male. Okay. What it looks like to be male. What it acts like to be male. And this is completely cultural. Right. Different cultures have very different perspectives on this. Um, we just recently had a Highland Games here at the church, and we had a lot of big men, including myself, walking around in pleated skirts because we're wearing kilts. Yeah. If you're in a Scottish culture, wearing a kilt is not feminine. If I wore a skirt, a different type of skirt, under any other context, people would say, like, well, but you're dressing in a feminine way. Whereas, you know, in, in the Middle East, men wear long flowing robes that are essentially dresses all the time. Yeah. But their culture, in their culture, that is masculine. Masculine is the presentation. It is a cultural definition of 
male or female. Mm -hmm. It is how our culture knows that you are male or female. By the way you act kind of thing? Is that what you're saying? The way you dress, the way you talk, and every culture is different. Yeah. I have a very good friend who was in China for a lot of years. And when he came to America, he said, I have a, I've got to figure out how to act like a male huh. in this culture. Because in China, for example, he told me, um, hyper-intellectualism is very masculine. In East Texas, hyper-intellectualism is not always considered very masculine. Right. And so that he had to, as, as he's walking around being a hyper-intellectual, he may get beat up for his lunch money, so to speak. Yeah. Every culture is different, in, in my opinion. One of the real diff- problems that we have in Christianity, many people think that there is such a thing as biblical masculinity or femininity. Yeah. Meaning, this is what it looks like to be a masculine man from the Bible's perspective. Mm-hmm. But it's just not there. Would you say there's something for like biblical manhood versus biblical no. masculinity? So here's the the only difference I see, and this obviously would be a much probably a much longer conversation, and maybe forced if too many people uh, go up in arms about this. But um, after spending a lot of time with a group of of young men researching this, think in terms of does the Bible give instructions for men, regardless of culture, for how we should act? Mm-hmm. That is not appropriate for women. So if you say, well. Men are supposed to be courageous, right? That's a masculine trait. You would have to then be able to say, and women aren't. Well, clearly women are supposed to be courageous. Yeah. Courage is the character trait of a God follower, not male or female. Disciplined, excellent. Or let's look at some feminine ones. Gentle, kind. Mm-hmm. Are men not supposed to be that? Every one of those is commanded to men as well. Even the most famous wives submit to your husbands is about wife relationships to husbands, not women's relationships to men. That's so true. And even in that, the word submit is not in. If I remember correctly, that's 521 of Ephesians. What's interesting is that passage says, let everyone submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 22 in the Greek says, wives to your husbands as to the Lord. The word submit is actually not in there in the Greek. It's referencing the word submit from the former verse because all believers are supposed, are supposed to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Yeah, It's not a male-female thing. Even in verse 22 it isn't. It's a wife-husband thing. But in verse mm-hmm. 21, it's a Christian ethic that we submit to one another. Members of the Mutual Submission Club, if we were living this out. And so the yeah. problem is, even within culture, which is why, for example, we decide in the church it's okay, at least in the evangelical church, it's okay for women to have short hair. What Paul seemed to be telling people when he's talking about the long hair, short hair issue, for Mm -hmm. example, men and women, is within your own culture, you should look, one, like a follower of Jesus. Um, That's most important. So you shouldn't look like a temple prostitute, for example. And two, you probably should look like what the cultural requirements are for the correct gender slash sex. Life is crazy sometimes, and finding time to sit down and read the Bible can be difficult. That is why I love Dwell. When I can't find time to read the Bible, I can listen to it. The voices reading the Bible are soothing. They're not your normal narrators. 
Plus, you can choose calming background music and adjust the pace of the narrator's voice to get things just right. Dwell's newest release is called Dwell Daily, a fresh, thoughtfully crafted devotional that immerses you in the word, allowing you to pray it, meditate on it, and so much more. If you're looking to deepen your engagement with the Bible this year, Dwell Daily is worth checking out. I cannot recommend Dwell enough to help you orient your mind to the life-giving Word of God throughout your day. Go to dwellbible.com forward slash journeywomen to receive your 25% discount today. Again, that's dwellbible.com forward slash journeywomen for your 25% discount to subscribe and spend time in God's Word. Even talking about this culture piece, I think this is what I've heard used as the argument to move towards being more accepting of more postmodern ideas in regard to sexuality. Am I right? Oh, yeah. And so they're excusing some of the passages in scripture that we see that explicitly address, you know, male, male, female, female relations. And they're saying, well, we're going to excuse those because it's no longer it wasn't culturally acceptable then, but now it has become that way. If you're going to make a case, that's the only case you have, in my opinion, biblically. And I do have a much longer conversation about this um, in an article on my website about homosexuality in general. The only case that you can make that homosexuality would not be a sin, biblically, is to say it is culturally no longer applicable, that those passages are culturally no longer applicable. The Bible clearly teaches that homosexuality is sin. Now, in the law of the Old Testament, it then said you're supposed to execute someone who has that type of relationship. And as Christians, we believe that Jesus's teachings no longer put us under the law right. culturally, as in that we're supposed to execute mm-hmm. um, homosexuals. That's That would be an inappropriate use of Scripture to apply that to us. However, all through the New Testament as well, there are plenty of passages in which homosexuality is listed among various sins. And so here's the problem with saying that the New Testament passages don't apply. And that is, they're listed with other sins. And you can't just pick and choose in the middle of a single verse to go, okay, yeah, adultery, that's still bad. Murdering, that's still bad. Coveting, yeah, that's still bad. Thievery, that's still bad. Homosexuality, no, that's fine. Yeah, You would have to be able to explain away the entire passage as culturally not relevant. For example, I was referencing 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 list there. In my opinion, you either have to throw out Scripture as a whole, the New Testament as a whole, as that it has no moral standing in our lives, which obviously it does, in order to say homosexuality is is an acceptable behavior. Now, again, now now we're talking a third area which is also we need to make sure for us Christians we have our language correct, is we're talking about when someone says homosexuality, a lot of times they just mean attraction. Right. And attraction is not sin. I can, I, I'm a, I've been married 24 years almost. Of course I can be attracted to other people, and so is my wife. The sin would be to engage in, in a sexual or romantic relationship with that person. It's not, it's not sin to be attracted. I mean, I, I'm attracted to car, to a different car or a different house or a different whatever. But as long as I don't steal it, that's okay to be attracted to something. It's okay if a man is attracted to another man in that that may be a temptation for him. Mm-hmm. But being tempted by something is not sin. It's, so let's always make sure as Christians we always distinguish 
I don't believe the Bible condemns being attracted to things. Lusting after that thing, being jealous of that thing, yes, those are mental exercises that are sin. Um, but just finding it interesting or intriguing or attracting or a person interesting, intriguing or attracting is not sin. Of course, that's going to, that's just, that's just humanity. So there's a difference there. This is kind of a common question that we hear talked about a lot, but why would it be that some of us would be attracted to a person of the same sex if that wasn't what God intended? (laughs) Yeah, this is, this was one of those that I think I thought, because I mean, you know me well enough to know my brain does weird things, but Early on, especially once I heard James Dobson talk about this, like back in the 80s, when the first research began to come out that there was likely a genetic predisposition for homosexuality that some homosexual people had. So you can choose to engage in a homosexual way, or there are other ways to develop attractions other than a genetic predisposition, like pornography or early childhood behavior or whatever but that there is a genetic predisposition. And immediately Christians came out and said, no, 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 that's not, that can't be possibly right. God would never make someone born gay, for example. Right. And I remember when Dobson said, and and I remember thinking the same thing when he said, um, isn't it a Christian fundamental doctrine that we are born fallen? Yeah. So we're all born as thieves, liars, selfish jerks, but we're just not born gay. Like, why, why would that be the case? That's ridiculous. And, and which also would have no bearing. By the way, there's really good evidence that there's genetic predisposition for things like pedophilia mm. in some people. So are we going to say, well, you know, since that's what they're attracted to, I guess that's what they should do. Of course not. We right. say there's a moral stance that transcends genetic predispositions. There's a, moral, there's a morality that transcends that. You and I would say the trustworthy source of that morality is scripture and reason. Whether someone is born with a predisposition for something is irrelevant to the moral conversation. So, so certainly someone could be born that way. That's That person, therefore, needs a savior, just like you did and just like I do. Right. Anyone who has children, I have never understood how anyone can think children are born blank slates or morally good. They must not have children yet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, babies don't sit in the crib going, you know, I'm hungry, but I can tell mom was tired. Yeah. <laughs> so I think I'm going to let her sleep. And then as soon as they can start communicating, they lie. I mean, they, yeah. they my, my eldest son could lie before he could speak. With a shake of his head, he could lie and did. And he never had seen anyone lie. He picked up that skill all by himself. So it's not surprising that we can do good things. The bad things is what is evidence that we need a savior. This is what makes the topic so heated and personal, but we don't think about it in the same way that we think about communicating the gospel to anyone who's struggling with the issue of inerrant sin, right? Absolutely. One of the mistakes Christianity made, or at least the vocal Christians, made at some point was kind of like, we have a special message for homosexuals out there, and that is you need a savior. Yeah. Versus saying, hey, we have a special message for the entire race of humanity, and that is you need a savior. And once you have him, you need him every day and every moment. And when you mess up, you need him. And when you're doing great, you really, really need him. And and there's no, like, that to me is a part of the mistake we've made is that somehow the sins that we personally find less tasteful, we somehow think are less tasteful to God. Whereas... Mm -hmm. 
I mean, mm-hmm. you want to find one that's less tasteful to God. Divisiveness among his people hmm. is listed probably a dozen times more often than any sexual sin. But we don't seem to have a problem with that one in our churches. Wow, yeah. That's convicting. Pride? Pride is always listed number one. And yet, we don't find people marching around with signs about pride. Yeah. In fact, what we do is find people marching around signs about homosexuality or pick a sin. And they are filled with pride in the way they're doing it. Yeah. And so to say that that's somehow less offensive to God is wrong. Uh, Clearly, pride is his least favorite. For me, on a personal level, what makes it hard to engage on this particular topic is just, number one, a lack of education, as you can even hear with me talking. And I'm so thankful for this conversation. But then it's also fear. And I don't know how that relates to pride. You can, I'm sure, dissect that for us. But just a fear and not wanting to offend and knowing that this is such a personal topic that's so closely tethered to one's identity. So could you give us some kind of understanding, like how can we engage with someone on this topic in a gospel-centered way, especially when their views differ from ours? Well, you're you're not in today's world, in a postmodern world. So remember, we're talking about something as fundamental as who am I in the universe? Yeah. And so when you're talking with most people today, if they disagree with you on one of these topics, it's because their metaphysic is different than yours. They believe that their role in the universe is to be the ultimate authority mm-hmm. in their own life. In fact, the only authority in their own life. They're the only one who gets to say what is right and wrong, what is valuable or not, what is precious and not precious, what is treasure and what is common. Like they define all of that from an internal perspective. And so you're not going to have a rational conversation with them that isn't going to be offensive to them, no matter how hard you try. What you want to avoid, Hunter, is to be unnecessarily offensive. For sure. I mean, Jesus is described as the scandalon, the stone that makes men stumble. Jesus is scandalous enough without us adding ourselves into the mix too much. And so to just say, yes, I believe the Bible teaches that this is the conversation we need to have. Yes, I believe homosexuality is taught in the Bible as a sin. But the problem we're dealing with is an identity question. Let's get back to the question of how do you know who you are? How do you know what makes life good? How do you know what makes life valuable? How do you know that you aren't trash? How do you know that you aren't meaningless, that your yeah. life has no significance? Because we, we intuitively know, and I believe all humans intuitively know that, that, that there's more to life than just mm-hmm. being sophisticated eating and pooping machines. <laughs> In a godless existence, that's all man is. Yeah. Uh, mankind is just more sophisticated version of an amoeba. We're not more special. We're not more whatever. We're just more sophisticated. We have no more meaning. We have no more purpose. We have no more value than any other living thing. And actually, than any other thing. Because we're just a compilation of cosmic matter that's going to be reabsorbed into the universe at some point. And and none of what we did will matter. Yeah. And something tells us at a deep level, that's not true. Mm-hmm. That's why atheists try to form human- humanitarian movements. Why would they bother? They're yeah. just wolves in a pack. I mean, they're just ants on a hill. Why? What difference does it make if you're ants who's moving one pebble or that pebble? That's all humanitarian movements are among a godless world. But we know better. That's why 
we continue to do that stuff. Now, I want to come back, now that I've laid that groundwork, I want to come back to your original question. So understanding that male and female is a sex difference. And we're going to have to learn to change our language. I'm telling you, it, I have such a hard, even when I'm teaching this, yeah. gender is the socio-cultural description of masculine or feminine. So like, for example, you know, we're talking on the phone. Today, you are dressed more or less feminine than you were yesterday. And you may have even felt that way. You may have been like, you know what? I'm going with the sweats and the whatever today. Yeah. And it may be Sunday. <laughs> you're like, you know what? I'm doing the dress and the heels. And so today, you are expressing less femininity than you were Sunday, if that's accurate. Okay, okay. That's all, that's all that is. Now, one of the hard things for us is, as evangelicals or fundamentalists or conservatives or whatever because they all struggle with this from the same reason, is throughout almost all of human history, that has been a binary continuum. Okay, so let me explain that. Yes, please. If I was drawing this on a board, I would draw a line with an arrow uh, at each end, and at one end it would say masculine, and at the other end okay, it would yeah. say feminine. Now, okay. you can go as far on either one of those as you want. So you could cut your hair short, put on a baseball cap. Yeah. You could do your best to present yourself as a man, you could try to, you could dress as masculine and behave as masculine. I mean, you could, you know, spit and right, right. do all the obvious things that all the gross things that guys do. So you could do that and you would then be masculine. You would not be male because that's a chromosome situation. Okay. That's what a transgender is doing. Right. So a transgender is saying, I'm going to express myself as Though I am male, I'm going to express myself as female. Okay. Because, and the word they use is because I identify more with female than male. Yeah. So because I identify as a female, despite the fact that I am male, I am going to express femininity. And, and that can include surgeries. It can include sure. hormone treatments. It can include everything. It will never make them female genetically. We still don't have that capacity. We may someday, but we don't right now. Right. So the question being asked is, the transgender wants to be identified not just gender, but sexually as female. Right. Which that can't, can't be, be done. done because sex is based on genetics. Okay. But here's the problem. If you're a postmodern, your response is, who is genetics to tell me what I am? Yeah. I say I'm female, therefore I'm female no matter what my genetics tell me. Yeah. So because a postmodern would say, there's no external source for anything. Therefore, their internal source, mm -hmm. which is all they have, says they're female. By definition, they're not. But who's, who, who is Webster to tell them? Definitions. Yeah. They should be able to define it however they want. If you want a fun conversation about postmodern philosophy, read Actual, the original versions of Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass. That's what Lewis Carroll was engaging with. Interesting. Was postmodern thinking, which is why you get, I think it's the Queen of Diamonds who invents words all the time. Interesting. Okay. She uses words the way she wants to. And when someone says, that's not what that word means, she says, it's what I say it means. Therefore, that's what yeah. it means. Well, it makes me think of that little clip that they did where they went around, and I don't remember what city it was in, but they went around and asked, what would you say if I said I'm a frog or something like that? And most people that are in kind of my age group were saying, I wouldn't argue with you. Like, okay, then you're a frog. Right. 
I mean, that's coming more and more as people who identify as other species. Um, there's a whole movement that, that does that, um, the furry movement and others that are they're identifying as other species. And therefore, by the way, marrying other species. Wow. Uh, because our, our government decided that, that the government no longer has the right to define anything, but to define something like marriage. And by the way, they never did. It was always God who defined marriage, not the government. We'd need another hour for that one at some point. <laughs> as churches are going to have to decide in America for 200 and something years, being a Christian, uh, a Bible-believing Christian, and being a good American citizen overlapped a lot, um, which is rare. That wasn't true in Rome. It's yeah. not true in Iran today. It's not true in China today. So it's, it's a rare thing. It's been rare throughout human history for being a Christian and a citizen to overlap. But we've all been raised in a culture where being a Christian, being a citizen overlap a lot. That's changing. For sure. What begins to happen when being a good Christian and being a good citizen are in opposition to each other. Yeah. As a Christian culture, we're going to have some very, very hard questions to answer. So I'll tell you the first one just quickly, and then we'll, we'll move off of this because we need to get to what the Bible says about sex, male and female. Right. Marriage is invented, created, spoken into existence in the Bible. And no matter whether you take the first chapters of Genesis as historical or just parable, it is clear that one of the purposes of the original account from Genesis 1 through 5 is to declare to a binary sex system, male, female. I mean, in 127, God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. This was a first step system, binary, male, female. Male and female cannot be a spectrum by definition because you only have two options. However, what's happened now with gender is that it's no longer a continuum. It's now a spectrum. Yeah. There's what, 50-something options on Facebook? Now, I was really disappointed when I read the list because actually the list is still binary. Huh. What's funny is all 51 of them are either a different way of describing male, female, or most of them are a third option, which is I deny that there is a binary. Hmm. I'm either a male expressing myself masculinely to one degree or another, or a male just expressing myself femininely to one degree or another, or the opposite, or I reject male, female, or masculine, or feminine. So they haven't said, but I am this. Yes, that's right. And there's and all they can say is I am, I mean, a word that just means not these two, or a denier, or... There's a few different words that are used there. Because we're stuck with sex being binary, we're going to have a hard time saying gender is a spectrum, even though in the culture we want to say that there's still only two things to accept or reject. So when the creation of woman, um, which is expounded on in Genesis 2, again, it's the same thing. There is a man and and then there is a woman and they are brought together. Even in 5.2, he created them male and female and blessed them and named the man the day they were created. Yeah. When he's talking to the serpent, male, female, this, the male and female is such a vital thing in Scripture. One of the main purposes of the laws, the deep Old Testament laws or the Levitical laws that we just scratch our head about. Right. The vast majority of those 
are meant to communicate on a day-to-day basis to the Jewish culture, some things aren't other things. So fish have scales. Therefore, catfish aren't fish because they don't have scales. One thing is not another thing is a main message because God is telling, teaching them two things. You are not other people, and I am not other gods. Yeah. And so, huh. like children, he's giving them a lesson all day, every day, um, with every thousands of little examples of this. One of them is male is not female. Yeah. It is a huge issue. There are hundreds right. of passages in which it is made clear male is not female. And to confuse them or mix them is an error. Sometimes the way you confuse or mix them can be straight sin. But to confuse or mix them is always at least error from God's perspective. This is not that. Part of why I wanted to go into the whole metaphysic thing at the beginning is to understand that when you're having a conversation with somebody, very often you're starting the conversation six or seven steps into the conversation. You're starting the conversation at a place when you're already on totally different playing fields. And so all good discussions have to, you have to work your way to where you agree. That's where you have to get first. Hmm. Look at, you know, the Apostle Paul in Acts on the, you know, the Mars Hill conversation. He starts with, here's where we agree. Hmm. And so you've got to do that. You have to start with, and so one, you have to know what they mean. When they use words, yeah. So when they say, "Well, we, sh- you know, we shouldn't judge so and so." Okay, what do you mean, judge? Um, that's a good. That's a, people use that term. That term as a emotional term, but they don't know what they mean when they say it. Yeah. Um, you know, the passage where Jesus says, "Don't judge," he says, "Don't throw pearls before swine." So we're not supposed to judge people, but we are supposed to evaluate whether or not they are swine hmm. before we throw wisdom to them. And so somehow there's a evaluation and judgment aren't the same. So that, that's an example. So one is, I think a very healthy question, especially for someone who claims to be a Christian, is what is God a source for? Is God a source for truth? Is God a source for morality? Do, what do you think about that? And then the next one is, is God a superior source to you or me? Yeah. And if he is, how do we know God's opinion on something? From his word. Okay. Obviously, that's what you're going to say and I'm going to say. Um, I think we can, There, I mean, there are five sources of truth. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the study of epistemology. But one of them is revelation. And as Christians, I've been convinced and therefore come to the conviction that scripture is the only truly trustworthy source for truth. Otherwise, you're just dealing with religion. And religion is man trying to please God. The relationship that Christianity seeks with God is man trying to know what God wants, not what we want for God. So I use this terminology all the time. I'll say, um, I want to buy my wife flowers. What type of flowers should I get her? And so I'll ask a crowd full of people, and they'll throw out roses, and they'll throw out all kinds of different things. And eventually I say, well, none of your opinions make any difference. Yeah. I'm not buying flowers for you. So only the people who said tulips are correct. Everyone else is wrong. Now, you're not wrong about the flowers you like. You right. said roses. You like roses. Good. Okay. You're right about that. But as to what flowers I should buy for my wife, you're wrong because she doesn't like roses. And the ones who said daisies, you're really wrong because she's allergic to them. <laughs> What I'm tempting to do as in Christianity is not just 
decide what flowers I want to give God. And they come up with a system for giving flowers to God, but to try to find out what kind of flowers God wants. Yeah. And if God and I disagree, then I need to go with God's version, with God's opinion. And so yeah. is God a superior source and how do I know his opinion? If it is scripture, then if, if the two of you can agree at that point, then you start a Bible study. Then you say, okay, well, let's start looking at what the Bible says. And then you have to go through good hermeneutic, a good the art and science of studying Bible, which is we observe, and then we do the research and we interpret, and then we figure out how to apply. So this is a much longer conversation than like a Facebook comment. <laughs> oh my gosh, you can never, oh gosh. If, you, if you've not read my, I've written two articles on the, the worthlessness of memes. Now we don't even put a Facebook post, we just put a funny picture with a comment on it. Right. And that's supposed to somehow offer our argument. That I will tell you, Hunter, I really struggle because as you can tell, so we've been talking in some ways, it feels like we've scratched the surface. Oh, yeah. I'm like, I can't even get to half my questions about femininity and masculinity because we have to set this foundation and it's so much more in depth than I even imagined. So a meme would not have been very valuable. No. People are too lazy to read a tweet, which is 144 Mm -hmm. characters. Yeah. And instead they want just a picture with a couple of words on it. And no wonder we're not having a sophisticated conversation about any of this stuff. Right. But here's the thing. Why would we? Postmodernism says, I'm the one who determines reality for myself. So what other people say is irrelevant. They don't have anything to add. They're external sources. Genetics is external source. People are external source. Culture is an external source. God, obviously, is an external source. And since none of them have any bearing from a therapy perspective, we are raising a generation of anchorless people. And we have no idea what that's going to cost us. Um, uh, yeah. When they, when they don't, I mean, in the next generation, what is it going to cost us? Now, the truth is, most of the time when, when a culture gets here, at least since Jesus Christ was on earth, you have an awakening. Because hmm. America has been very close to this before. There is an awakening happening in the world right now. Mm-hmm. Hundreds of thousands of converts, over 100,000 converts to Christianity a day. But there's only a few thousand in the entire Western world. Yeah, the Eastern world is having uh, an awakening like we've never seen in in the in, in the entirety of Christianity. So you're talking about the generations, and I know for a lot of my listeners, like myself, we're mothers, and I would love to hear from you how we can engage our children on this topic, especially when they're being told very different things from external sources like schools. Always. Parents have been the leading um, predictor of what children believe as they get older. Hmm. Um, and we people might be think that's very strange. Like, don't kids usually rebel at some point? And yes, to some degree, most kids rebel at some point. For some of them, it lasts a few hours, and for some of them, it lasts a few years. But in most healthy households, in the end, the number one predictor for how a child, for example, votes is how their parents voted. Hmm. Um, and so... The truth is parents are still the number, if, especially if they will intentionally take the role of number one influence. Yeah. Um, and don't, you may have the best children's minister in the world. Well, you don't. I do. The best children's minister in the world here at this <laughs> church. But, but you, you may have the second best children's minister in the world somewhere, and yet the Bible does not call them to raise up your children. We reference Deuteronomy 6 kind of constantly at this church, telling people it's not Rebecca's job to educate your children in the truth of God. It is yours. And grace, graciously, you have hired Rebecca to help you do that and our whole team to help you do that. But it's your job, not ours. And so 
this is a constant reminder that if parents will be intentional about raising up kids and, and teaching them the basic truths of God, hero Israel, the Lord, our God, Lord is one. You shall love Lord to God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, you know, and love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, these are fundamental, fundamental teachings of scripture. The foundation, if we don't like that word anymore, we'll say the foundational teachings of scripture Children need to know some things are bigger than they are, mm-hmm. that there are external sources for things, that there are, there's such a thing as true north, and no matter how much I shake the compass, when I get done shaking it, it's going to point that way. There are rocks that I cannot break. Um, it's a scary thing to think that you are the only source for pretty much everything. That's why we will continue to see mental health issues, suicide rates, depression continue to skyrocket as so long as the postmodern metaphysic is the dominant one. Yeah. So it's it's not it's no good from that perspective. It has some great things, by the way. Postmodernism has some really cool stuff. The narrative, the context, us understanding Jesus as a Jew, which is what I'm teaching a class on now, Ooh. is the reason largely is because postmodernism taught us to look at Jesus through his context, not ours. Yeah. And so thank you, postmodernism, for teaching us that Jesus was a Jew again after fifteen hundred years. But some of the other things in postmodernism are so disintegrating. I have definitely come to see that I have a lot of work to do in this area. And I'd love to hear what you would recommend to someone like me who's just really these thoughts and ideas that we've been discussing today. I mean, postmodernism, this is the first time I've ever thought about it, to be honest. So what are some resources that you'd recommend to those of us who really want to grow in this area so that we can actually engage in a helpful dialogue with someone who differs on the topic of gender and sexuality? Yeah. Um, In regards to postmodernism and the metaphysical conversation, my favorite two teachers on this are William Lane Craig um, and J.P. Moreland, okay. two philosophy professors out of Talbot. Um, they, they just communicate it very well. I, I think I may have that part of this conversation on uh, my website, just, just the basics of postmodernism. Okay. Uh, let me see if I do. We'll be sure to link to this in the show notes. Yeah, basic post. That's actually what I entitled it. How funny! Basic postmodernism. Awesome. Um, postmodernism at a glance is there, and it's it is from Moreland and Craig's uh, textbook. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's good. Okay, uh, that, yes. Again, that's at chrismleg.com, Basic postmodernism. Um, but then you have um, honestly that can be studied from any good philosophy text or book or that kind of thing, just in the basics. As far as this conversation in regards to gender and stuff connecting to that, I haven't found another source yet. Uh, I think that's the weird, the, the weird amphibian that I am as being trained in psychology right. and trained in theology is, is what allowed me to kind of bring some of these things uh, together. Um, if there are other sources for it, it's not, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not under the illusion that I created this or, or came up with this first, totally. but I just haven't found another source on it yet. Um, I would love to, so if someone else finds one, you know, let me know. Yeah, for sure. Send them our way. Yeah. I feel very dumb when I think about these things. Do you have any encouragement for, sure. for me? I, one, I disagree with you. I think I think you probably now do understand it quite well. I have developed an understanding, and I'm going to listen to this probably five more times. <laughs> <laughs> I think already you have an understanding beyond what most people now have. And so... 
Uh, Hunter, I've built my whole life on the fact that I may not be able to outrun the bear, but I can outrun at least one of the other campers. <laughs> and so uh, I think that it is a, um, that's where you want to be when you're with somebody because that gives you the ability to lead them a little bit. And so how do we, that back to that, is God a source? Is he a superior source? And how do we know what God says? And then we can begin to look at what God says. Now, if you start with, is God a source? And they say, I don't believe there is a God. Well, then you've got a whole lot of groundwork. Oh, yes. Right? And so that's going to be a whole other apologetic. That's a whole yeah. other conversation. There's no Talking with them about gender issues is not likely to be particularly valuable. They literally believe that humanity has a different role in the universe than you do. Well, you better settle that first right. before you talk about whether they should be having sex with a male or a female. I mean, that's... That's exactly, I mean, the Bible tells us over and over again, don't try to correct the sinful behavior of lost people. Behavioral modification is not what Christianity is about. Yeah. Jesus didn't come to prune us as C.S. Lewis said. He came to tear us up by the roots and start over. And so that's the thought that we're somehow going to fix somebody's sinful behavior or mindsets yeah. or just errors in thinking without introducing them to Jesus. I mean, we're pretty limited in what we can do. We can kind of poke holes in their boat. Which is why I do those conversations with people is to say Christianity is a rational faith. It is not irrational. It's not a crutch for masses. It's not, as Mark Twain said, believing in something you know ain't so. I mean, it's, it is a rational, foundational truth set on other rational and foundational truths that in the end you may decide you're not convinced by, but, but you can't deny that it is rational and foundational. And so... Yeah. Um, that's why I have those conversations. It's not I, only the spirit converts. My job is to explain it, mm -hmm. and that's at some level loving people through. Mm -hmm. And and as much as I hate to say it, a lot of times until someone faces a crisis, they're not. How do I say it? They're they're not. The metal in them is not warm enough to be changed. Mm. It's not hot enough to bend or be reshaped until they face some kind of a crisis. And that's when you they you want them to know you care enough about them that they can come to you. Yeah, for sure. Well, I am so encouraged just to continue to develop my understanding on this topic and then just to develop a willingness to engage because I think maybe this is more of a cultural view of femininity, but for females, it can be hard to engage on a topic that's potentially conflict creating. Yeah, that can create so much conflict. And so I'm just really encouraged and I could sit and talk to you for many more hours about this and maybe we'll have an opportunity to address questions in the future if people have to. them. So, And we can do, again, like you said, there's a half of questions that we talked about that we didn't get to at all. Mm -hmm. I would be honored, you know, if there comes a time when you think it's a good fit for me to come back on and talk about some of those, let me know. I'll, I'd love to do it. Well, before you go, there's a couple of fun questions that I ask every guest who comes on okay. the Journey Women podcast, and okay. they're a lot more fun <laughs> than what we've okay. just discussed. Not that postmodernism isn't fun, but <laughs> I'd love to hear from you. What are three of your simple joys, Chris? Great question. I'll tell you, and here, let me tell you part of why I think this is a great question. One is, I think one of the ways we fight depression is that we have little joys every day. Slightly bigger joys every week, hmm. bigger ones every month, and bigger ones every year. And by a joy, by the word simple joy, what I mean is the things we look forward to. Yes, yes. So for here's one: I read out loud to my wife every night. I love that, or almost every night. And so we lay in bed, and she scratches on me, which is obviously awesome because she has great skills. <laughs> 
and I read out loud to her. And so in 24 years of marriage, um, I actually have a list somewhere, but I mean, we've read, I've read the Lord of the Rings out loud to her twice, the Harry Potter series. Um, I mean, we're going through, uh, Agatha Christie mysteries right now. I mean, it's thousands and thousands of pages of material and that's how she falls asleep. So she scratches on me for a while and then I kind of play with her hair while I read to her. And then I have to periodically ask like, are you? you still awake? And so (laughs) when she doesn't answer, that's when I know to stop. Well, you've inspired Brooks and I to do that. I don't know if you know, but we read A Severe Mercy when we were dating, and now we have a daughter named Davy. So you have (laughs) truly changed, (laughs) probably changed our lives with that suggestion, because I am pretty sure we got engaged because of A Severe Mercy. (laughs) Keep doing it. If you're not still doing it, and we've gone through phases where we we try a book and it just doesn't hold her attention or mine. Yeah. We always get back to it. That's one. Okay. Another one is I, so here's what's funny. So my children who are, they are go through co-ops and educational homeschool and that yeah. kind of stuff. So they're just, they're rabid, rabid readers. I mean, they read insanely. And so they, they read constantly. And so I thought I was going to be a dad who read to my kids at night. Yeah. But the problem is my kids, I'll start a book with them and then they'll find it the next day and they'll and finish, finish it. it. Wow. And so I watch movies with my kids, which I would never have predicted. And, right. and if your kids, if your kids are movie watchers all day, read to them. But what's funny is my kids are such readers that I can't keep up with them anyway. Mark, who's now in, in college has, has literally read more material, I think in his life than I have. That's crazy. Cause he's such a reader. And so the joy was me introducing them to good and bad movies from my era that was it is one of my it is one of the most relaxing things I do in a day is to sit down with my kids. Now, right now, my 11 year old, 12 year old is at that age where it's hard to find movies that he can see that are fun to watch. It's such right. a weird phase for movies. Right. But um, and then my daughter and I are now we've started watching through some some of the Netflix series that everybody else is, you know, addicted to as well. But we only get, you know, 30, 40 minutes to watch. And so we're constantly you know, chomping at the bit to keep everybody else is done, you know, it goes from right, right, two right. and they're all done by 4am. And, uh, this, which is funny. I never would have thought I was a dad who was going to sit and watch TV and movies with my chi- my kids, but it is our, that's our special hangout time. I'm envious. I think I, I watched the, uh, the Bobby Fisher movie at your house and that yes, was like, wow, yes. we can analyze movies like and talk about them and how they relate to our faith. And we do, we talk about them as at all different levels um, how good they are, the excellence, all that stuff. Um, and then um, I would say my third one, and this will, this, you know, this may be a little controversial, but a third one is I pretty much hardwire schedule a poker game for my friends at my house oh, once a yes. month. Yes, yes. I know that's strange for a Southern Baptist, a preacher of a Southern Baptist church, <laughs> to do that, but it is huge for me. And I, what's funny is I never quote have time to do it, but. Somewhere around the fourth or fifth hand, so we all gather, we put out the cards, we pray, and then we deal and just hang out and talk. And about the third or fourth hand, I feel all of my muscles relax, like my shoulders mm. relax. And so I don't realize I need it until I'm yeah. doing it. That I need some what John what my worship leader John Redford calls um meaningless time with meaningful people. Oh, I love that. Isn't that great? Yes. I would say those are the first three. I have so many little joys 
Hunter. I really do. My life is so blessed. Those are three that came to me immediately. Well, when I think about the the poker game, which I've also played poker at your house, and uh-huh. I, I think about Brooks spending time with you, Chris, and I'm just so thankful for the influence that you have had on both of us, but particularly on my husband and how you've been really a man that he can look to for what it looks like to walk in godliness. And the last question that I ask every guest on the show is, who has had the greatest influence on your journey with Jesus? So that's um, what's, it's really tough because um, I my life has been such a I mean a, a, it is it is embarrassing the richness of my life um, when it comes to people mm. who have had those influences and I'm I'm not naturally gifted as an encourager but I was trained well by a man who I worked with um, who's now a missionary um, Scott Sullivan mm. to encourage and so now it's like automatically now what comes to my mind because he trained me to do this is is all the different people who I now have a chance to encourage by mentioning them on your podcast. Um, <laughs> but I mean, certainly, I mean, maybe surprisingly, so I'm, I'm going to work my way to the, the answer I'm going to give. But um, certainly, um, I would say, especially my eldest son and kids, but I mean, Mark and Mark's just, he's the one who's been around the longest. I mean, he's had a huge influence on my faith. Wow. Um, my father obviously had a huge influence on my faith. Um, and he laid a lot of groundwork for things that I've been able to build on. And Ginger's 24 years. I mean, I've been married longer than I wasn't married. And, hmm. and there's no way I would have any capacity um, to do what I'm doing. I can't imagine without her. Yeah. I often wondered there was a compassionate national child who I took on when I was 19 years old and he graduated out years ago and he would tell me he prayed every day Papa Chris for you and your fa- for me and my family. Wow! And it may turn out in heaven that he had the greatest influence on my spiritual walk with wow. Jesus. Even if I never met him, it'll be interesting to see. I think what I'm going to say is that my grandmother did, mm. mainly because of the joy that she modeled. Um, you've probably heard me talk about. You have heard me talk about that. That my grandfather and grandmother, my dad's parents' marriage, is the one that Ginger and I model ours after. They were so loving and so affectionate and so devoted to each other at so many levels. Um, they both came from hard family backgrounds, and yet they just chose to create something different. And so aside from the fact that my grandfather was a man defined by humility and wisdom, and yet apparently he came from an abusive background, that my grandmother was just, she was in my corner against anyone um, I learned a lot about how love affects theology when, because she was raised to believe that you could lose your salvation. And over Thanksgiving one day, she and I had about a 15-minute conversation about why that wasn't true. And so you're, I'm talking about a 70-something-year-old woman. Yeah. And because I'm her grandson, and she now has to decide, all of my pastors, all of my preachers, all of my teachers have taught me wrong my entire life, or my grandson is wrong. Me being wrong was not an option for her. All the other people must be wrong. And she was like, you know, I think you're probably right about that. And so the relationship we had immediately <laughs> changed her theological view. I don't know. <laughs> yes, yeah, she's like, I trust you more than everybody. More than everybody. And so, and she she was such a, a source of inspiration. Like I tell grandparents all the time, one of the things we're really missing in church in general right now is people stepping up and being people's spiritual grandparents. Yeah, I um, You mentioned something about me being a spiritual father figure for you, which makes me just humble and proud at the same time that the thought that I, that I would be get to be that. But 
I love being a spiritual father for people. I think it's maybe the most powerful ministry, one of the most powerful ministries is to be that spiritual maternal or paternal person in someone's life, Yeah. whether they're your child or someone else's child. But man, my grandmother was my grandmother and she was my spiritual grandmother. And mm. I think we need more spiritual grandmothers in the church and grandfathers in the church. And for some reason, that generation, most of them seem to kind of be saying, I've done my part. Yeah. And it's it's costing us huge, especially in, with your generation, because you your generation automatically respects them. If they've been married fifty two years, they you autom- they automatically have your respect, and you want to sure, know how they got. Influence. But that's, I, I'm going to say right now. Maybe I'd give you a different answer on a different day. <laughs> but um, I would say right now that my grandmother she died a couple of years ago, Aww. and me doing her funeral was one of the craziest wow. honors of my life. The thought that I would do her funeral. Yeah, I would say she's probably in many ways had the greatest influence on my walk with Jesus. I don't know that I would have one without her. Well, Chris, you've had such an influence on both Brooks and I, and I am elated just to get to share you and the way in which you think, the way in which you love Jesus with the listeners today. So thank you so much for gifting us your time and coming on the Journey Women podcast. I really appreciate it. I love it. Love to come back anytime. Guys, thanks for hanging in there. I know this conversation was challenging, but I am grateful for the way that Chris approached it from the perspective of both a therapist and a pastor. On a personal level, I'm encouraged to consider how I can better engage in educated dialogue with both believers and unbelievers about not only human sexuality, but the gospel as well. As always, all the links and books Chris and I discuss will be up on the show notes at hunterbelis.com, as well as his noteworthy quotes and how you can connect with him on the social needs. Be sure to hop over to at Journey Women Podcast on Instagram or Facebook or at Journey Women Pod on Twitter to connect with us throughout the week. I hope you guys have a beautiful Thanksgiving with your families or friends. And I can't wait to be with you again next Monday when Gloria Furman and I will be talking about living on mission. See you here next week.